Book Three, Chapter Twenty Two of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Twenty Two. As may be imagined, the Churton Advertiser did not find its way to Muirwell. It was certainly no pressure of social disapproval that made the squire go down to Mile End in that winter's dawn. The county might talk, or the local press might harangue, till doomsday, and Mr. Wendover would either know nothing or care less. Still his interview with Merrick in the park after his return from a week in town, whither he had gone to see some old Berlin friends, had been a shock to him. A man may play the intelligent recluse, may refuse to fit his life to his neighbour's notions as much as you please, and still find death, especially death for which he has some responsibility, as disturbing a fact as the rest of us. He went home in much irritable discomfort. It seemed to him probably that fortune need not have been so eager to put him in the wrong. To relieve his mind, he sent for Henslow, and in an interview, the memory of which sent a shiver through the agent to the end of his days, he let it be seen that though it did not for the moment suit him to dismiss the man who brought this upon him, that man's reign in any true sense was over. But afterwards the squire was restless. What was astir in him was not so much pity or remorse as certain instincts of race which still survived under the strange superstructure of manners he had built upon them. It may be the part of a gentleman and a scholar to let the agent whom you have interposed between yourself and a boorish peasantry have a free hand, but after all the estate is yours, and to expose the rector of the parish to all sorts of avoidable risks in the pursuit of his official duty by reason of the gratuitous filth of your property is an act of doubtful breeding. The squire, in his most rough-and-tumble days at Berlin, had always felt himself the grandee as well as the student. He abhorred sentimentalism, but neither did he choose to cut an unseemly figure in his own eyes. After a night, therefore less tranquil or less meditative than usual, he rose early and sallied forth at one of those unusual hours he generally chose for walking. The thing must be put right somehow, and at once, with as little waste of time and energy as possible, and Henslow had shown himself not to be trusted. So telling a servant to follow him, the squire had made his way with difficulty to a place he had not seen for years. Then had followed the unexpected and unwelcome apparition of the rector. The squire did not want to be impressed by the young man, did not want to make friends with him. No doubt his devotion had served his own purposes. Still, Mr. Wendover was one of the subtlest living judges of character when he pleased, and his enforced progress through these hovels with Ellesmere had not exactly softened him, but had filled him with a curious contempt for his own hastiness of judgment. "'History would be inexplicable after all without the honest fanatic,' he said to himself on the way home. "'I suppose I had forgotten it. There's nothing like a dread of being bored for blunting your psychological instinct.' In the course of the day, he sent off a letter to the rector intimating in the very briefest, driest way that the cottages should be rebuilt on a different site as soon as possible, and enclosing a liberal contribution towards the expenses incurred in fighting the epidemic. When the letter was gone, he drew his books towards him with a sound which was partly disgust, partly relief. This annoying business had wretchedly interrupted him and his concessions left him mainly conscious of a strong nervous distaste for the idea of any fresh interview with young Ellesmere. He got his money and his apology. Let him be content. 
However, next morning, after breakfast, Mr. Wendover once more saw his study door open to admit the tall figure of the rector. The note and cheque had reached Robert late the night before, and, true to his newborn determination to make the best of the squire, he caught up his wide awake at the first opportunity, and walked off to the hall to acknowledge the gift in person. The interview opened as awkwardly as it was possible, and with their former conversation on the same spot fresh in their minds, both men spent a sufficiently difficult ten minutes. The squire was asking himself indeed, impatiently, all the time, whether he could possibly be forced in the future to put up with such an experience again, and Robert found his host, if less sarcastic than before, certainly as impenetrable as ever. At last, however, the mile-end matter was exhausted, and then Robert, as good luck would have it, turned his longing eyes on the squire's books, especially on the latest volumes of a magnificent German Wilgeschich lying near his elbow, which he had coveted for months without being able to conquer his conscience sufficiently to become the possessor of it. He took it up with an exclamation of delight, and a quiet critical remark that exactly hit the value and scope of the book. The squire's eyebrows went up, and the corners of his mouth slackened visibly. Half an hour later, the two men, to the amazement of Mrs. Darcy, who was watching them from the drawing-room window, walked back to the park gates together, and what Robert's nobility and beauty of character would never have won him, though he had worn himself to death in the service of the poor and the tormented under the squire's eyes, a chance coincidence of intellectual interest had won him almost in a moment. The squire walked back to the house under a threatening sky, his Mackintosh cloak wrapped about him, his arms folded, his mind full of an unwonted excitement. The sentiment of long past days, days in Berlin, in Paris, where conversations such as that he had just passed through were the daily relief and reward of labour, was stirring in him. Occasionally he had endeavoured to import the materials for them from the continent, from London. But as a matter of fact, it was years since he had had any such talk as this with an Englishman on English ground, and he suddenly realised that he had been unwholesomely solitary, and that for the scholar there is no nerve stimulus like that of an occasional interchange of ideas with someone acquainted with his fach. Who would ever have thought of discovering instincts and aptitudes of such a kind in this long-legged optimist? The squire shrugged his shoulders as he thought of the attempt involved in such a personality to combine both worlds, the world of action and the world of thought. Absurd! Of course, ultimately one or other must go to the wall. Meanwhile, what a ludicrous waste of time and opportunity that he and this man should have been at cross-purposes like this! "'Why the deuce couldn't he have given some rational account of himself to begin with?' thought the squire irritably, forgetting, of course, who it was that had wholly denied him the opportunity. "'And then the sending back of those books! What a piece of idiocy!' Granted an historical taste in this young parson, it was a curious chance, Mr. Wendover reflected, that his choice of a subject he should just have fallen on the period of the later empire, of the passage from the old world to the new, where the squire was a master. The squire fell to thinking of the kind of knowledge implied in his remarks, of the stage he seemed to have reached, and then to cogitating as to the books he must now be in want of. He went back to his library, ran over the shelves, picking out volumes here and there with an unwonted glow and interest all the while. He sent for a case, and made the youth who sometimes acted as his secretary pack them. And still, as he went back to his own work, new names would occur to him, 
and, full of the scholar's avaricious sense of the shortness of time, he would shake his head and frown over the three months which young Elsmere had already passed, grappling with problems like Teutonic Arianism, the spread of monasticism in Gaul, and heaven knows what besides, half a mile from the man in the library who could have supplied him with the best help to be got in England, unbenefited by either. Mile End was obliterated, and the annoyance of the morning forgotten. The next day was Sunday, a wet January Sunday, raw and sleety, the frost breaking up on all sides and flooding the roads with mire. Robert, rising in his place to begin morning service, and wondering to see the congregation so good on such a day, was suddenly startled, as his eye travelled mechanically over to the hall pew, usually tenanted by Mrs. Darcy in solitary state, to see the characteristic figure of the squire. His amazement was so great that he almost stumbled in the exhortation, and his feeling was evidently shared by the congregation, which throughout the service showed a restlessness, an excited tendency to peer round corners and pillars, that was not favourable to devotion. "'Has he come to spy out the land?' the rector thought to himself, and could not help a momentary tremor at the idea of preaching before so formidable an auditor. Then he pulled himself together by a great effort, and fixing his eyes on a shock-headed urchin halfway down the church, read the service to him. Catherine, meanwhile, in her seat on the northern side of the nave, her soul lulled in Sunday peace, knew nothing of Mr. Wendover's appearance. Robert preached on the first sermon of Jesus, on the first appearance of the young master in the synagogue at Nazareth. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The sermon dwelt on the messianic aspect of Christ's mission, on the mystery and poetry of that long natural expectation, on the pathos of Jewish disillusion, on the sureness and beauty of Christian insight, as faith gradually transferred trait after trait of the Messiah of prophecy to the Christ of Nazareth. At first there was a certain amount of hesitation, a slight wavering hither and thither, a difficult choice of words, and then the soul freed itself from man, and the preacher forgot all but his master and his people. At the door, as he came out, stood Mr. Wendover, and Catherine, slightly flushed and much puzzled for conversation, beside him. The whole carriage was drawn close up to the door, and Mrs. Darcy, evidently much excited, had her small head out of the window, and was showering a number of flighty inquiries and suggestions on her brother, to which he paid no more heed than to the patter of the rain. When Robert appeared, the squire addressed him ceremoniously. "'With your leave, Mr. Ellesmere, I will walk with you to the rectory.' Then in another voice, "'Go home, Letitia, and don't send anything or anybody.' He made a signal to the coachman, and the carriage started, Mrs. Darcy's protesting head remaining out of window as long as anything could be seen of the group at the church door. The odd little creature had paid one or two hurried and recent visits to Catherine during the quarrel. Visits so filled, however, with vague railing against her brother, and by a queer, incoherent melancholy, that Catherine felt them extremely uncomfortable, and took care not to invite them. Clearly, she was mortally afraid of Roger, and yet ashamed of being afraid. Catherine could see that all the poor thing's foolish whims and affectations were trampled on, that she suffered, rebelled, found herself no more able to affect Mr. Wendover than if she had been a fly buzzing round him, and became all the more foolish and whimsical in consequence. The squire and the Ellesmeres crossed the common to the rectory, followed at a discreet interval by groups of villagers, curious to get a look at the squire. 
Robert was conscious of a good deal of embarrassment, but did his best to hide it. Catherine felt all through as if the skies had fallen. The squire alone was at his ease, or as much at his ease as he ever was. He commented on the congregation, even condescended to say something of the singing, and passed over the staring of the choristers with a magnanimity of silence which did him credit. They reached the rectory door, and it was evidently the squire's purpose to come in, so Robert invited him in. Catherine threw open her little drawing-room door, and then was seized with shyness as the squire passed in, and she saw over his shoulder her baby, lying, kicking, and crowing on the hearth-rug in anticipation of her arrival, the nurse watching it. The squire in his great cloak stopped, and looked down at the baby as if it had been some curious kind of reptile. The nurse blushed, curtsied, and caught up the gurgling creature in a twinkling. Robert made a laughing remark on the tyranny and ubiquity of babies. The squire smiled grimly. He supposed it was necessary that the human race should be carried on. Catherine, meanwhile, slipped out and ordered another place to be laid at the dinner-table, devoutly hoping that it might not be used. It was used. The squire stayed till it was necessary to invite him, then accepted the invitation, and Catherine found herself dispensing boiled mutton to him, while Robert supplied him with some very modest claret, the sort of wine which a man who drinks none thinks it necessary to have in the house, and watched the nervousness of their little parlour-maid with a fellow-feeling which made it difficult for him during the early part of the meal to keep a perfectly straight countenance. After a while, however, both he and Catherine were ready to admit that the squire was making himself agreeable. He talked of Paris, of a conversation he had had with Monsieur Renan, whose name, luckily, was quite unknown to Catherine, as to the state of things in the French chamber. "'A set of chemists and quill-drivers,' he said contemptuously. "'But as Renan remarked to me, there is one thing to be said for a government of that sort. Ils ne font pas de la guerre. And so long as they don't run France into adventures, and a man can keep a roof over his head and a sou in his pocket, the men of letters, at any rate, can rub along. The really interesting thing in France just now is not French politics.' heaven save the mark, but French scholarship. There never was so little original genius going in Paris, and never there was so much good work being done. Robert thought the point of view eminently characteristic. Catholicism, I suppose, he said, as a force to be reckoned with, is dwindling more and more. Absolutely dead, said the squire emphatically, as an intellectual force. They haven't got a writer, scarcely a preacher. Not one decent book has been produced on that side for years. "'And the Protestants, too,' said Robert, "'have lost all their best men of late.' And he mentioned one or two well-known French Protestant names. "'Oh, as to French Protestantism—and the squire's shrug was superb. Teutonic Protestantism is the, in the order of things, so to speak, but Latin Protestantism. There's no more sterile hybrid in the world.' Then, becoming suddenly aware that he might have said something inconsistent with his company, the squire stopped abruptly. Robert, catching Catherine's quick compression of the lips, was grateful to him, and the conversation moved on in another direction. Yes, certainly, all things considered, Mr. Wendover made himself agreeable. He ate his boiled mutton and drank his ordinaire like a man, and when the meal was over and he and Robert had withdrawn into the study, he gave an emphatic word of praise to the coffee which Catherine's housewifely care sent after them, and, accepting a cigar, he sank into the armchair by the fire and spread a bony hand to the blaze, as if he had been at home in that particular corner for months. 
Robert, sitting opposite to him, and watching his guest's eye travel round the room, with its medicine shelves, its rods and nets, and preparations of uncanny beasts, its parish litter, and its teeming bookcases, felt that the Marland matter was turning out oddly indeed. "'I have packed you a case of books, Mr. Ellesmere,' said the squire, after a puff or two at his cigar. "'How have you got on without that collection of counsels?' He smiled a little awkwardly. It was one of the books Robert had sent back. Robert flushed. He did not want the squire to regard him as wholly dependent on Muirwell. "'I bought it,' he said rather shortly. "'I have ruined myself some books lately, and the London Library, too, supplies me really wonderfully well.' "'Are these your books?' The squire got up to look at them. Hmm, "'Not at all bad for a beginning. I have sent you so and so.' And he named one or two costly folios that Robert had long pined for in vain. The rector's eyes glistened. "'That was very good of you,' he said simply. "'They will be most welcome.' "'And now, how much time?' said the other, settling himself again to his cigar, his thin legs crossed over each other, and his great head sunk into his shoulders. "'How much time do you give to this work?' "'Generally the mornings, not always. A man with twelve hundred souls to look after, you know, Mr. Wendover,' said Ellesmere, with a bright, half-defiant accent, "'can't make grubbing among the Franks his main business.' The squire said nothing, and smoked on. Robert gathered that his companion thought his chances of doing anything worth mentioning very small. "'Oh, no,' he said, following out his own thought with a shake of his curly hair. "'Of course I shall never do very much. But if I don't, it won't be for want of knowing what the scholar's ideal is.' And he lifted his hand with a smile towards the squire's book on English culture, which stood in the bookcase just above him. The squire, following the gesture, smiled too. It was a faint, slight illumining, but it changed the most hideous forms of bodily ill, this interruption, these great names, this talk of great movements and great causes, had a special savour and relish. All the horizons of the mind expanded, the current of the blood ran quicker. Suddenly, however, he sprang up. "'I beg your pardon. Mr. Wendover, it is too bad to interrupt you. I have enjoyed it immensely, but the fact is I have only two minutes to get to Sunday school in.' Mr. Wendover rose also, and resumed his ordinary manner. "'It is I who should apologise," he said, with stiff politeness, "'for having encroached in this way on your busy day, Mr. Ellesmere.' Robert helped him on with his coat, and then suddenly the squire turned to him. "'You were preaching this morning on one of the Isaiah quotations in St. Matthew. "'It would interest you, I imagine, to see a recent Jewish book on the subject of the prophecies quoted in the Gospels, which reached me yesterday.' There's nothing particularly new in it, but it looked to me well done. "'Thank you,' said Robert, not, however, with any great heartiness, and the squire moved away. They parted at the gate, Robert running down the hill to the village as fast as his long legs could carry him. "'Sunday school! Pshaw!' cried the squire, as he tramped homeward in the opposite direction. Next morning a huge packing-case arrived from the hall, and Robert could not forbear a little gloating over the treasures in it before he tore himself away to pay his morning visit to Marle End. There everything was improving. The poor Charlotte's child indeed had slipped away on the night after the squire's visit, but the other bag-cases in the diphtheria ward were mending fast. John Allwood was gaining strength daily, and poor Mary Charlotte was feebly struggling back to a life which seemed hardly worth so much effort to keep. 
Robert felt, with a welcome sense of slackening strain, that the daily and hourly superintendence which he and Catherine had been giving to the place might lawfully be relaxed, that the nurses on the spot were now more than equal to their task, and after having made his round, he raced home again in order to secure an hour with his books before luncheon. The following day a note arrived, while they were at luncheon, in the squire's angular, precise handwriting. It contained a request that, unless otherwise engaged, the rector would walk with Mr. Wendover that afternoon. Robert flung it across to Catherine. "'Let me see,' he said, deliberating. "'Have I any engagement I must keep?' There was a sort of jealousy for his work within him, contending with this new fascination of the squire's company. But honestly, there was nothing in the way, and he went. That walk was the first of many. The squire had no sooner convinced himself that young Ellsmere's society did in reality provide him with the stimulus and recreation he had been too long without, than in his imperious, willful way he began to possess himself of it as much as possible. He never alluded to the trivial matters which had first separated and then united them. He worked the better, he thought the more clearly, for these talks and walks with Ellesmere, and therefore these talks and walks became an object with him. They supplied a long, stifled want, the scholar's want of disciples, of some form of investment for all that heaped-up capital of thought he had been accumulating during a lifetime. As for Robert, he soon felt himself so much under the spell of the squire's strange and powerful personality that he was forced to make a fight for it, lest this new claim should encroach upon the old ones. He would walk when the squire liked, but three times out of four these walks must be parish rounds, interrupted by descents into cottages and chats in farmhouse parlours. The squire submitted. The neighbourhood began to wonder over the strange spectacle of Mr. Wendover waiting grimly in the winter dusk outside one of his own farmhouses, while Ellesmere was inside, or patrolling a bit of lane till Ellesmere should have inquired after an invalid or beaten up a recruit for his confirmation class, dogged the while by stealthy children with fingers in their mouths who ran away in terror directly he turned. Rumours of this new friendship spread. One day, on the bit of road between the hall and the rectory, Lady Helen, behind her ponies, whirled past the two men, and her arch look at Ellesmere said as plain as words, "'Oh, you young wonder, what hook has served you with this leviathan?' On another occasion, close to Churton, a man in a cassock and cloak came towards them. The squire put up his eyeglass. "'Huh!' he remarked. "'Do you know this merry Andrew Ellesmere?' It was Newcombe. As they passed, Robert, with slightly heightened colour, gave him an affectionate nod and smile. Newcombe's quick eye ran over the companions. He responded stiffly, and his step grew more rapid. A week or two later Robert noticed, with a little prick of remorse, that he had seen nothing of Newcombe for an age. If Newcombe would not come to him, he must go to Mottringham. He planned an expedition, but something happened to prevent it. And Catherine, naturally this new and most unexpected relation of Robert's to the man who had begun by insulting him, was of a considerable importance to the wife. In the first place it broke up to some extent the exquisite tete-a-tete of their home life. It encroached often upon time that had always been hers. It filled Robert's mind more and more with matters in which she had no concern. All these things many wives might have resented. Catherine Ellesmere resented none of them. 
It is probable, of course, that she had her natural moments of regret and comparison, when love said to itself a little sorely and hungrily, It is hard to be even a fraction less to him than I once was. But if so, these moments never betrayed themselves in word or act. Her tender common sense, her sweet humility, made her recognise at once Robert's need of intellectual comradeship, isolated as he was in this remote rural district. She knew perfectly well that a clergyman's life of perpetual giving forth becomes morbid and unhealthy if there is not some corresponding taking in. If only it had not been Mr. Wendover. She marvelled over the fascination Robert found in his dry, cynical talk. She wondered that a Christian pastor could ever forget Mr. Wendover's antecedents, that the man who had nursed those sick children could forgive Mile End. All in all, as they were to each other, she felt for the first time that she often understood her husband imperfectly. His mobility, his eagerness, was sometimes now a perplexity, even a pain, to her. It must not be imagined, however, that Robert let himself drift into this intellectual intimacy with other the most distinguished of anti-Christian thinkers without reflecting on its possible consequences. The memory of that night of misery which the idols of the marketplace had inflicted on him was enough. He was no match in controversy for Mr. Wendover, and he did not mean to attempt it. One morning the squire unexpectedly plunged into an account of a German monograph he had just received on the subject of the Jernine authorship of the Fourth Gospel. It was almost the first occasion on which he had touched what may strictly be called the materiel of orthodoxy in their discussions, at any rate directly. But the book was a striking one, and in the interest of it he had clearly forgotten his ground a little. Suddenly the man who was walking beside him interrupted him. "'I think we ought to understand one another, perhaps, Mr. Wendover,' Robert said, speaking under a quick sense of oppression, but with his usual dignity and bright courtesy. "'I know your opinions, of course, from your books. You know what mine, as an honest man, must be, from the position I hold. My conscience does not forbid me to discuss anything, only I am no match for you on points of scholarship, and I should just like to say once and for all that, to me, whatever else is true, the religion of Christ is true.' I am a Christian, and a Christian minister. Therefore, whenever we come to discuss what may be called Christian evidence, I do it with reserves which you would not have. I believe in an incarnation, a resurrection, a revelation. If there are literary difficulties, I must want to smooth them away. You may want to make much of them. You will not quarrel with me for wanting to make it clear. It isn't as if we differed slightly. We differ fundamentally. Is it not so?' The squire was walking beside him with bent shoulders, the lower lip pushed forward, as was usual with him when he was considering a matter with close attention, but did not mean to communicate his thoughts. After a pause he said, with a faint, inscrutable smile, "'Your reminder is perfectly just. Naturally we all have our reserves. Neither of us can be expected to stultify his own.' And the talk went forward again, Robert joining in more buoyantly than ever, perhaps because he had achieved a necessary but disagreeable thing, and got done with it. In reality, he had but been doing as a child does when it sets up its sand-barrier against the tide. End of Book 3, Chapter 22